This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. It's great for you to be joining us on today's program. I'm Joel Hilliker. The world's attention is fixed on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russia has quietly completed another conquest of the former Soviet state of Belarus. This country, independent since 1990, has effectively become Russian territory. And Vladimir Putin has been using Belarus to stage his attack on Ukraine. In our first segment, we will hear a report from trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques about the implications of this victory by Vladimir Putin. U.S. President Joe Biden says the greatest threat to America today is white supremacy. Well, what does the evidence say? The fact is the media routinely cover up incidents of black violence, black racism, and black supremacy. We saw this in the recent fatal subway attack in New York City by Frank Robert James. The facts are being papered over in a damaging way, and it actually points to what trumpet writer Rufaro Maniepa explains is truly the most lethal threat to America. Did you realize that you are breathing in plastic? Microplastic pollution has been found in body tissue during autopsies, but two new scientific studies have found microplastics in lung tissue and blood samples of living people. The plastification of our planet could be seriously damaging our health. For our third segment, we'll hear a report about this from trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau. And at the end of the program, our last word today is about how to inspire your children to obey God's beautiful law. Let's begin now by learning how Russia has taken over Belarus in this report from Jeremiah Jacques. When Russian strongman Vladimir Putin began sending tens of thousands of troops into Ukraine back in late February, a vast number of them entered not from Russia to the east, but from Belarus to the north. In the months before the invasion, Putin had pressured the Belarusian government into letting him amass some 30,000 Russian soldiers in Belarus. And his plan now is to leave a considerable number of them there indefinitely. So this means that however Putin's war on the former Soviet nation of Ukraine turns out, he has already basically completed the conquest of another major former Soviet state. And this conquest of a country of 9.5 million people wedged in between Russia and Europe is no small thing. So how did it happen? How did Putin quietly accomplish one of his primary strategic goals? And what does it mean for global security? Belarus's ruler, Alexander Lukashenko, has often been called Europe's last dictator. Of course, with men like Hungary's Viktor Orban now on the scene, the accuracy of the last part of that title could be debated. But what's sure is that Lukashenko is a dictator, the kind who has shown that he'll probably only leave the presidential palace in a coup or a coffin. And what's also sure is that Lukashenko has linked himself to Putin, a man he sometimes calls his big brother, in a way that no other world leader has even approached. The 67-year-old Lukashenko is one of very few world leaders who's actually been on the scene for longer than Putin. He was elected as Belarus's president back in 1994, 
just three years after the country declared independence during the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And unlike the leaders of most other former Soviet states who wanted to make a clean break with the failures of the past, Lukashenko preserved the relics of communism in Belarus. The anniversary of the October Revolution of 1917 is still a national holiday there. State-owned factories remain under Lukashenko's control. And he's gone out of his way to cleave to Russia, culturally, economically, politically, and even militarily. In 1997, Lukashenko actually started working on a plan, or at least paying lip service to it, which would create a union of Belarus and Russia. The stated purpose of this was nothing less than unifying the peoples of the two countries into one political entity, one flag, one currency, one judiciary, one integrated economy, and one military. After Putin took the reins in Russia on the last day of the 20th century, he and Lukashenko became fast friends and Russia began pushing harder for the creation of this two-state union. During these years, Russia became foundationally vital to Lukashenko's regime, especially since Putin began selling Belarus steeply discounted energy. And Belarus began to become ever more vital to Putin as well. After the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, the U.S. military established ties with some post-Soviet nations. NATO planned to deploy missile defense systems in Eastern Europe, and several East European nations started shifting their policies in favor of Europe. These developments gave Belarus extreme strategic value to Putin. It was a pro-Russia buffer in between Europe and the Russian landmass. Over the next 20 years, Putin and Lukashenko boosted integration in all areas, with particular focus on the military realm. The two nations began conducting dozens of joint war games together every year. They began developing weapons programs in tandem. And Putin even brought Belarus into his Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is a major weapon of his power. The two were close and vital to each other. Yet, Lukashenko still delayed full integration. Yes, he would roll the red carpet out for Putin's visits and discuss it with him in highly publicized meetings, but when it came to the real action, Lukashenko dragged his feet. He didn't want Belarus to be fully integrated into Russia, so he pursued a multi-vector foreign policy. This meant that even though he was dependent on Russia, he maintained productive working relationships with various European Union nations and the United States. He would talk commitment to Putin, but then make overtures to the West. So even though Putin kept pushing to absorb Belarus, Lukashenko was able to use this intricate balancing maneuver to keep it from happening. This was Lukashenko's strategy for nearly two decades, and it seemed like he would be able to maintain it for as long as his heart was beating. But in August of 2020, the situation dramatically changed. Belarus had held a presidential election, and Lukashenko's people voted against him in a landslide. But he had no plans to retire, so he falsified the count in a way that made him the victor. This was democracy with Russian characteristics and it infuriated many Belarusians. Some 200,000 of them marched through Minsk, the capital city, for weeks on end, demanding that Lukashenko step down. 
After 26 years of Lukashenko's corruption and mismanagement, they had had enough. The winds of change were blowing, and it looked like the people had the numbers and the tenacity to oust Europe's last dictator. But that's when Big Brother Putin stepped in. As the Belarusians demonstrated, Putin announced that he stood ready to send Russia's military in to help Lukashenko subdue the protesters and ride out the storm. And then, while most European leaders sided with the protesters, refusing to accept the results of the rigged election, Putin welcomed them. He knew that doing so would give him far more leverage over Lukashenko. And as Europe and the U.S. fired volley after volley of sanctions on Lukashenko's regime to punish it for the brutal crackdown on the Belarusian people, Putin was giving Lukashenko hundreds of millions of dollars worth of cheap loans, and he was continuing to pump that steeply discounted natural gas into the country. Thanks to all of this, there was no coup for Lukashenko and no coffin. He put the opposition down and consolidated more power, so it's clear that Putin threw Lukashenko an absolutely vital lifeline when no one else would, and at a time when Lukashenko needed it most. Without Putin, Lukashenko would not have survived politically, a fact that both men understand very well. And so it was in the aftermath of that lifeline from Russia that Lukashenko let Putin station 30,000 Russian soldiers, the largest number since the Cold War, in his country. Lukashenko only reluctantly allowed it because he understood that Putin would likely leave some of the forces there indefinitely. He knew that it represented a surrender of Belarusian sovereignty, so he was reluctant, but ultimately he had no choice. He became beholden to Putin back in 2020 and made himself entirely dependent on Putin for the survival of his regime. So he let the Russians in. And he also agreed around the same time to greenlight a major part of that two-state union plan. So it's clear that Lukashenko's days of walking the tightrope and balancing Belarus between Russia and the West are over. His years of resisting Russia have come to an end. Belarus is now joined to Russia once again, much like it was during the days of the Soviet Union. When that union fell apart in the early 1990s, the world rejoiced. The Soviet Union was notorious for its oppression, dehumanization, its purges and its prison camps. Its appalling industrial policies had killed dozens of millions of its own people. So when it collapsed, many viewed that as a victory for freedom, and they celebrated but not Vladimir Putin. During a speech back in 2005, he called the breakup of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. He has made clear that what he misses is not the failed economics of the Soviet Union, but the bloc's power and prestige. He looks back fondly on the era when Russia and Belarus and Ukraine and 12 other nations were forged under the Soviet hammer into one massive nuclear-armed superpower, and all under the control of the Russian leader. In the time since Putin called the Soviet Union's breakup an unparalleled catastrophe, he has channeled much of Russia's might into hammering those nations back together. He's been working to reverse that catastrophe, and to even create something mightier than the Soviet Union ever was. Toward this end, he invaded the former Soviet nation of Georgia in 2008, 
bringing a fifth of Georgia back under Russian control. That was a major move in Putin's strategy to try to reforge the Soviet Union. Then in 2014, Putin hammered more strategically vital pieces of the old Soviet machine back into Russia when he invaded Ukraine and annexed the Crimean Peninsula and took over parts of the East. This year's dramatic escalation of the attack on Ukraine is part of that same strategy, and so is his quiet conquest of Belarus. These are major developments, and the trumpet carefully watches them because of what Bible prophecy says about the role of Russia's leader in end-time events. Revelation 9.16 describes a huge Asian army that will be a major player in World War III. With 200 million soldiers, it will be by far the largest army ever assembled in human history. Ezekiel 38 and 39 say a prince of Rosh will be the man leading this gargantuan force. And Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has identified Putin as the individual in these passages. In his 2017 booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, he writes, quote, This world has a lot of authoritarian rulers, but Vladimir Putin is one we need to keep a particularly close eye on. His track record, his nationality, and his ideology show that he is fulfilling a linchpin Bible prophecy. The time frame of his rule also shows that nobody else could be fulfilling the Ezekiel 38 and 39 prophecy. Mr. Flurry's booklet explains that Putin's leadership of Russia, including his conquest of nations like Belarus, shows that a time of worldwide calamity is fast approaching. It'll be a catastrophe far worse than any during the 20th or any other century in history. But he emphasizes that there is also great hope welded into these developments and prophecies. He writes that the fact that Putin is now leading Russia proves that the most hope-filled event in mankind's history is close. To understand these events in the prophetic context and to learn about the profound hope that's intimately tied to them, order your free copy of The Prophesied Prince of Russia. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Is white supremacy the greatest threat to America today as President Joe Biden says it is? We'll take a look at the evidence in this report from Rufaro Manyepa. On April 12th, Frank Robert James, a 62-year-old black man, allegedly shot 10 people in a New York City subway train. In almost all reports, the media tiptoed around identifying his race. He was almost universally described only as an individual in a green vest with a gas mask. In a nearly 2,000-word article about the attack, the New York Times didn't even mention his race once. CNN barely did better, calling him, quote, a black gentleman, unquote. This is in regard to the man who detonated two smoke bombs before firing 33 times into a crowded train car. He would have continued if his gun hadn't jammed two minutes into his shooting spree. 
On Friday, a federal grand jury indicted him for committing a terrorist attack on a mass transit system, a crime that could result in life in prison if he is convicted. However, most of the media is still taking pains to avoid mentioning James's race. They rarely do in cases involving black suspects. The off-supplied reason is to avoid reinforcement of negative stereotypes. It's the reason why black-on-black crime is so underreported. Never mind the fact that James had been arrested nine times before. Never mind the fact that black criminals are responsible for 51% of murders in the United States, despite making up only 13% of the population. In April 2021, Joe Biden told Congress, We won't ignore what our own intelligence agencies have determined. The most lethal terrorist threat to the homeland today is from white supremacist terrorism. White supremacy, he said, is terrorism, and we will not ignore that. You don't even necessarily have to be a criminal to be branded a white supremacist today. In many cases, you just have to be white. In contrast, there is a general belief that black people just can't be racist. Many on the left say reverse racism is a myth. But a mounting body of evidence shows that a large amount of black crime is motivated by racism. Take Frank James, for example. His now deleted YouTube, Twitter and Facebook accounts reveal a belief that white people are about to enact genocide on the black population. He believes that the situation in America is, quote, no different than what happened in Europe with the Jews. But while the Jews had the Allies' support, he tells the black community, the whole world is against you. And so the message to James was that, quote, I should have gotten a gun and just started shooting, end quote. That's a very clear line of reasoning and motive. However, the media has tried to get ahead of the truth. The New York Times wrote that Mr. James, who is black, directed much of his hatred toward black people, whom he often blamed for the way they were treated in the United States. CNN wrote that hate speech was a common theme throughout James's videos, in which he repeatedly espoused hatred toward African Americans. Basically, the line from the media is that since Frank James clearly hates black people, he can't possibly be racist. Therefore, racism wasn't a motive. The media even mentioned James's apparent dislike for Kamala Harris and newly confirmed Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. But in one video, he clearly expresses that his dislike for them is purely from the basis that they married white men. You see, James is a radical separatist who thinks whites and blacks should have, quote, no contact with each other. This is because he believes that white people think that black people's rightful place is as a slave. And as such, he believes that, quote, we need to see more mass shootings. End quote. This is to show that it's not about the shooter, he says. It's about the environment in which he is and that he has to exist. Frank James comes off as someone who was repeatedly told that he lives in a racist country and he believed it. 
That's exactly what the left tells black Americans. A study by the Washington Free Beacon found that 50% of articles about a white suspect mention his race within the first three paragraphs. In contrast, 50% of the articles about black suspects don't mention their race until at least 60% of the way into the story, if at all. Now, Frank James didn't particularly care for other races besides white either. He appears to hate whites the most, but he shares a disdain for Asians and Hispanics too. Two months ago, he posted a vitriolic video against Spanish speakers, he said, on his YouTube channel, and he used racial slurs, calling Hispanics, quote, a drain on resources and nothing more than machines created to be laborers. It's no coincidence that Sunset Park, the neighborhood surrounding the 36th Street station where the shooting occurred, is a 42% Latino community. Frank James was a black supremacist in every sense of the word. Black nationalism is black unity, he wrote in one post. And it's clear to see the effect of his ideology. He was allowed to post racist videos and statements for years on the same social media platforms that banned a sitting United States president. The left wants you to know about white supremacists, both real and fabricated. They want you to think that if they, the white supremacists, both real and fabricated, are publicly attacked and silenced, then society will be perfect. But it might be the Frank Jameses of this world that you need to know about even more. Their stories barely get any airtime, but there are lots of people like him, and they're doing a lot of damage already. Last year, Daryl Edward Brooks was charged for driving through a Christmas parade in Waukesha. He killed six and injured dozens more. In February, Quintez Brown was charged with attempted murder for entering a Jewish Louisville mayoral candidate, Greg Greenberg's headquarters, and opening fire. In April 2021, Noah Green killed one and maimed another Capitol Police officer after deliberately ramming his vehicle into two police cars. In 2020, Grafton Thomas was charged with murder after allegedly charging into a Hanukkah party with a machete. He killed one and injured several others. These are just a few of several racially motivated crimes that have been underreported over the last few years. Like Frank James, all these suspects are black. Like Frank James, their stories were all underreported. And like Frank James, they all have some ties to Black Lives Matter, black nationalism, anti-Semitism, or people like Louis Farrakhan. They are all black supremacists. Now, a person's race doesn't predispose him or her toward a particular set of beliefs or actions. That's why it's so important to ask why black supremacists even exist. And it's the leftist ideology that supplies the answer. We live in a society where black Americans are constantly told that they are oppressed. They are repeatedly told that they live in a racist country. They are told that white people are inherently evil and racist. So they're told that it's okay to riot. 
They are told that they need to be violent if they are going to be free. And that is the kind of ideology that can push people like Frank James over the edge. The radical left knows the truth about black perpetrated crime. They just choose not to report it. They know that white supremacy isn't the problem that they show it to be. And yet they choose to call it the most lethal threat to America. The truth is that there is an agenda at play, and it's one that's very difficult to discern. But one man, Herbert W. Armstrong, discerned it over five decades ago. In a 1969 issue of his Plain Truth magazine, predecessor to the trumpet, he asked, Why are our people unable to recognize the communist line, the communist plan and conspiracy in college and university riots, in propaganda accusing police brutality, in Black Power, Black Panther, and other slogans, even in civil disobedience and nonviolent movements of protests which lead to violence? You see, communists are obsessed with seizing power, and they will do it at any cost. They will encourage violence and restlessness. They will create false narratives to stir up anger. They will suppress the truth to ensure that their agenda continues as planned. They would rather see the country erupt in violence and chaos, even be destroyed, if it means that they can attain power. These people hate America. They hate its founding principles and ideals. They hate its Judeo-Christian values. And so they are determined to destroy it. But this hatred is much deeper than just a lust for power. It is actually spiritual in nature. The Bible reveals that there is a powerful spirit being actively working in the children of disobedience. In Ephesians 2 2 and John 8 verse 44. He and his evil spirits are actively stirring up destructive attitudes and violent actions. Our editor in chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, has written that these spirits are behind the murders committed by policemen and behind the murders of policemen. America is under attack. And there is a powerful being behind the lies of the radical left. A being with an agenda to blot out the very name of Israel. This being knows that if the whole country misidentifies the most lethal threat to America, they won't realize that it is in fact his pernicious influence. This power is leveling all its strength against the US in a way very few people realize. To gain a clear picture about the serious threat posed to America, please request your free copy of America Under Attack by Mr. Gerald Flurry. is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Did you realize that you are breathing in plastic? 
Science is increasingly revealing how much our lungs and our bodies are infiltrated by the plastic we encounter each day, and it could be damaging your health, as we will now hear in this report from Abraham Blondeau. Two new scientific studies have found microplastics in lung tissue and blood samples of living people. Microplastic pollution has been ubiquitous for decades and has been routinely found in body tissue during autopsies. Now that these particles have been found in living people, scientists are unsure of the immediate and long-term health effects. Quote, the scientists analyzed blood samples from 22 anonymous donors all healthy adults and found plastic in 17, wrote an article in The Guardian. Half of the samples contained polyethylene tariff salate, or PET, also known as polyester, which is commonly used in drinks bottles, while a third contained polystyrene used for packaging food and other products. A quarter of the blood samples contained polyethylene, from which plastic carrier bags are made, end quote. Microplastics come into human bodies via eating food, drinking, and breathing in particles. Previous research has demonstrated that microplastic particles can cause damage to human cells. The Guardian article continues, quote, A recent study found that microplastics can latch onto the outer membranes of red blood cells and may limit their ability to transport oxygen. The particles have also been found in the placentas of pregnant women, and in pregnant rats, they pass rapidly through the lungs into the hearts, brains, and other organs of the fetuses, end quote. Scientists do not know if microplastics in the bloodstream that lodge and gather in organs can pass through the cellular wall into the brain or can cause cancer and other diseases. Medical News Today wrote, quote, Plastic particles smaller than 20 micrometers, which are too small to be seen by the human eye, can cross the cell membrane and accumulate in tissues. Previous research detected microplastics in the human colon, feces, placental tissue, human blood, and most recently, the lungs, end quote. A study published in the Science of the Total Environment discovered microplastics in deep lung tissue, of living people who were undergoing lung reduction surgery or lung cancer surgery. The study took place at the University of Hull and Hull York Medical School. Medical News Today continued, quote, Researchers discovered microplastics in all the regions of the lung. They identified 39 microplastics in 11 of the 13 tissue samples, with an average of 3 microplastics per sample. The four most common microplastics found were polypropylene, PET, resin, and polyethylene. The researchers were surprised at how deeply the microparticles were able to penetrate into the lungs. Medical News Today wrote, quote, Dr. Osita Onuga said it was hard to say anything about microplastics and their current implications with current data. The real question is, what does something within the body do? The body does not like things that cause inflammation and things that are foreign like plastics. So if it leads to chronic inflammation, that's where you can have things that develop years down the road, he continued. The long-term health effects of microplastics in the lungs are not currently understood. Dr. Anuga said a follow-up study should address if microplastics within the lungs can lead to inflammatory lung disease or cancer. 
he added that it should be carried out in a significant population to determine a cause and effect, end quote. Microplastics are literally everywhere in our modern society. Plastic bottles, bags, toys, carpets, and clothes all release microplastics into the air. According to Dr. Frazian van Dyck, a researcher at the University of Groningen, quote, clothing textiles release micro and nanofibers to the environment. She added that in the house where you live, approximately 20 kilograms of dust accumulates per year, of which 6 kilograms are microplastic fibers. And because you spend most of the time indoors, this means that the exposure is pretty high. End quote. Industrial workers are often exposed to high amounts of microplastic pollution in their workplace. One source of microplastics that none of these articles mentioned was reusable masks. For two years, most jurisdictions have required individuals to wear masks because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The common reusable masks are built from microplastic materials, specifically PET. Is there a correlation between researchers finding microplastics deep in the lungs of living people for the first time and people wearing masks for the past two years? A study performed at the University of Wisconsin looked at the amount of microplastics inhaled over a period of hours while wearing, quote, both reusable and disposable face masks. The study said, our results showed that fiber particles from masks can be inhaled and masks marketed as a reusable cotton face mask release fibers consisting of cotton on polyester or polyethylene terephthalate plastic, end quote. Even with repeated washings, several hundred particles of cotton or microplastics were discovered in the samples. Another study published in the National Library of Medicine had similar findings, where no matter what kind of mask was worn, the masks contributed to microplastic inhalation to varying degrees. Yet the report concluded, quote, Nonetheless, the use of masks is crucial during the pandemic scenario, even though they might contribute some microplastic inhalation. It is a minor problem as compared with protecting humans from COVID-19, end quote. Mask mandates were imposed with zero research into the long-term health effects. Finding microplastics deep inside our lungs might be the tip of the iceberg when all the unintended consequences are eventually revealed. According to a study commissioned by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, the global average of microplastic ingestion could be as high as 5 grams a week per person. That's a teaspoon of plastic, the equivalent of a credit card every week. And you can read more about that in our Trumpet article called The Plastification of Our Planet by Jorg Mardian. The authors of Our Stolen Future write, There is no clean, uncontaminated place nor any human being who hasn't acquired a considerable load of persistent hormone-disrupting chemicals. We are altering the fundamental systems that support life." End quote. In a world saturated with microplastics, what can you do to protect your health? The answer, the cause, lies in the understanding that an all-knowing, all-wise creator composed our bodies out of the dust of the ground, out of matter, wrote Trumpet executive editor Stephen Flurry in the article, The Clean Life. Continuing the quote, he designed our physical bodies to function according to definite physical laws. The transgression of those laws brings a penalty, 
sickness, disease, or debility. If we are to live truly healthy lives, we must understand and deal with the causes of good health. If we do this, we can avoid the causes of sickness. The best way to solve a problem is never to get involved in it in the first place. There are three indispensable ingredients to clean, healthful living. Fresh air, pure water, and good food. End quote. Fresh air, pure water, and good food are all part of the laws of healthful living. In the world where our air, our water, and our food have been poisoned by chemicals and microplastics, and in a world where masks may be mandatory, it takes more effort than ever before to follow these laws of health, but it has never been more important to put in the effort to establish a healthy lifestyle. The laws of health can help us avoid the penalty of sickness, pain, and disease. It is never too late to start following the laws of health. It takes an investment and effort, but you will reap abundant blessings. Quote, health is within our reach, Albert Hubbard wrote. It costs nothing, only the effort which soon grows into a pleasurable habit. End quote. Mr. Flurry concluded, let's resolve now with firmness of mind to set ourselves on the right course physically to acquire the habits that lead to active, robust living. To learn more about these all important laws of health, please read our article, The Clean Life, and our booklet, The Plain Truth About Healing. It's time for today's last word. I remember one day when my oldest daughter was three years old. We were on a family trip to a playground and I saw that she didn't want to share the swings with the other children. Well, my wife and I took her away and we disciplined her and we had a big talk and we even did some role playing, teaching her how to share. We talked about God's way being the give way, why it was so much better than the get way. Well, later we went back to the park and my daughter was swinging, and another child asked if he could take a turn. It was a test, and I watched intently. Sure, she said. She hopped off the swing, and just like we had talked about earlier, she went and found something else to do. I was elated, and she happened to pass by me, and I said, Hey there, I saw what you did. I'm so proud of you. And she beamed. And I said, you see how happy you are? That's a better way, isn't it? It feels good to live the way of give. And she nodded her head and then scampered off to play. Well, a few minutes later, I heard her say something to a friend that instantly qualified as my most satisfying moment as a parent to that point. She said, my daddy was so proud of me when I shared and it made me so happy. That moment has remained etched in my memory for all these years. And it illustrated to me a vital parenting lesson that I've thought about quite a lot since that time. Our long-term goal as parents is, as it says in Malachi 4 and verse 6, to turn the hearts of our children to their heavenly father. 
We want to help them attain God's kingdom by inspiring them to hate sin and to love God and his law with their whole hearts. That means leading them in love toward the stage when they are self-motivated to keep God's law and pursue that relationship. Well, this is a daunting challenge. But, you know, we have a far higher rate of success if we remember that ultimate goal. All of our love and instruction and discipline should target that end. The parent whose ultimate goal is to have a docile, quiet, perfectly behaved child, for example, well, he may reach his goal through oppressive means that actually turn his children's hearts away from God. Consider Psalm 111 and verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. Now that verse teaches in principle that we have to follow a gradual progression of instruction in our children's lives that matches their level of maturity. It says wisdom begins with the fear of God and it progresses from there. The first step in inspiring our children to love God and his law is to associate disobedience with a penalty. We're in place of God in our young children's lives. We know what's best for them. We have to steer them away from harmful behavior. And often wrong behavior like not sharing is immediately pleasurable. A child doesn't understand what's wrong with it just through his own reasoning. Our responsibility is to override that pleasure by immediately applying discipline. That's how God dealt with the Israelites to motivate them to avoid the curses of sin. When they rebelled, he would curse them with a plague or he would turn the weather against them or remove his protection and allow them to go into captivity. Fear of punishment is a powerful motivator. And it's an invaluable means of getting someone's attention or helping him to establish a habit of obedience. By itself, punishment doesn't achieve the long-term goal. It doesn't inspire someone to love God's law. Again, as we discipline our children, we have to keep that overarching goal in mind that we're trying to help them love God and to love his law. The next step in this process, which we have to use together with the first, is to associate obedience with a reward. That helps the child begin to not only avoid wrong behavior, but really strive for right behavior. For the youngest child, it can be something as simple as applauding or making silly faces to show appreciation when they do something right. But as a child gets older, rewards can take a lot of different forms. This is certainly a tool that God uses when the carnal Israelites did things right. For example, he blessed them with wealth, with children, with victories and land and and other things. Desire for reward is also a powerful motivator. But even that by itself won't necessarily inspire someone to love a way of life. God uses it as a means to an end. If someone can be inspired by a desire for a reward, then God can begin to work with his mind in more powerful ways. These two tools, applying punishments and rewards, are critically important for establishing habits of obedience and instilling a respect for authority in our children. We have to apply them diligently and consistently and at a level our children can understand. The only way to alter the behavior of an infant is by immediately applying a very direct reward or punishment. 
But obviously this has to change with age. Gradually as our children mature, we should introduce additional punishments and rewards, including things that are more long-term. For example, you might be able to get a young child to obey by saying, well, if you don't finish your vegetables, then later this evening you won't get any dessert. Or if you're friendly to others, then after church services later this week, I'll let you spend the night at your friend's house. And as our children approach and enter adolescence, our use of punishments and rewards has to match their spiritual, emotional, and intellectual capacity. And it always has to remain rooted in that goal of helping them to love God's law. So that means that as they mature, we take more time teaching them, giving them deeper instruction. They need help in seeing how short-term sacrifices will produce long-term gains help to see how Satan makes lawlessness attractive and then he obscures the kickbacks of sin and how if God withholds something from us, it's only for our good, those types of lessons. And if we've done our job as parents, then even as our children enter adulthood, they should still be open to our influence and persuadable. We should be able to easily guide their behavior by saying things like, you know, if you ignore my advice, I'll be really disappointed. Or if you make this correct choice, I guarantee you're going to be happier with your decision down the road. We need to teach them to see beyond the present moment and to recognize the long-term consequences of their choices, the curses for sin, the benefits and rewards of obedience, both in this life and eternally. Well, something wonderful happens in our children's lives as we consistently teach this very practical lesson that disobedience brings curses and obedience brings blessings. That verse in the Psalms, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and a good understanding have all they that do his commandments. Wisdom begins with respect and reverence, and that includes the fear of punishment for disobedience. But as our children obey the laws and they reap blessings as a result, and as they see over time that these laws really work and they make us happy, then they begin to grow in understanding the law. Even when we're enforcing our children's obedience through artificial application of curses and blessings, they're still reaping the blessings and the benefits of obedience. But think about this. If we don't instill habits of obedience in them because You say, we fail to do that job and our children habitually disobey. They're not going to have the opportunity to gain a good understanding of God's law. Again, the more our children obey God's law, the more they will understand it. And the more they understand God's law, the more they learn to love it. Of course, we we need to continually cement these lessons in their mind through instruction. We need to help them recognize those curses and blessings, especially when they're just the natural consequences of their choices. Show them that God's law is holy, it's just, it's good. Point out the beauty and the logic and the elegance of that law and how it produces peace among people, how their, their friendships, their school, the nation, the world could be transformed if it kept that law instill within them a desire to keep it, not just to avoid punishment or to receive a blessing, but because it's good. It's a great law, and they love it. Inspire your children to obey God's law, and above all, turn their hearts 
to the wonderful, loving Father who gave us that beautiful law of love. And then even when they're grown, they'll still be thrilled, like Jesus Christ himself was, at the thought of always doing those things that please him. In effect, they'll be saying for their whole lives, my father was so proud of me when I shared, and it made me so happy. Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to my guests, Jeremiah Jacques, Rufaro Maniepa, and Abraham Blondeau. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from C.S. Lewis. What draws people to be friends is that they see the same truth. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.